strong sense of pleasant, you know, carrot, unpleasant, stick, and heartfelt friend, you know, a strong sense of that can does tend to activate selfing. So I think that's a useful takeaway from that material on allocentric, egocentric. That said, you might want to play around, as I know people do, like in Tibet they'll talk about sky gazing. Or when you're, sometimes people will deliberately lift their eyes up a little bit, even if their eyes are closed. I think we want to be a little careful about manipulating our experience too much. I mean, maybe it's the case that with the eyes down, I, I find myself naturally doing this. You know, with my eyes closed, they'll be kind of down, but there'll be a lot of sense of just alerting, letting go, tranquilizing, and experience as increasingly impersonal, dependently arising, ultimately partaking of everything. And then maybe toward the end, I'll look up and there'll be that extra release into it all. But this particular bit here, about the allocentric networks and increasingly train the brain to be accident prone by grace, etc., has shifted my practice to more of an open awareness practice based on some prior training and steadiness of mind, which is very fundamental, and feeling into what it's like to increasingly relate to experience as um, it's happening in the, you know, from the perspective of this body. But it's arising due to so many factors, and it's made up of so many parts. Who could possibly own it? Who could possibly be in charge of it? That's been very useful personally. Okay, maybe one more person, and then how about you? Because great. Yeah, I I have. um, I was just curious, you know, sort of looking from the cognitive psychology realm of things, and this whole concept of self and that self is really about how we see ourselves and the more we see, how we see ourselves influences what we pay attention to and what we don't pay attention to, which then influences our actions, which then, you know, increase. And I just wonder if you could say a few words of how you see that connected to some of the things you're talking about. Yeah, um, it's really quite remarkable to appreciate that with young children, for example, a major developmental milestone is to develop a coherent sense of certainly personhood, you know, and children who don't develop that, either due to trauma or maybe some fundamental neurological organic impairment, they're disturbed in terms of healthy development. So there is this irony that, and I'm going to get to it momentarily, that we want to, it's, it's useful to experience a kind of cohesion and worth as a person, the standing wave that has some stability to it and has value and is somewhat protected, right? But on the other hand, to the extent that we get caught up in, you know, a kind of, any kind of vanity or any kind of um, inappropriate possessiveness, right? Or... We get way deep into identification. I identify with what happens to my sports team, like these riots of fans who are whacking each other because their soccer team lost by a point or something. Like, what's with that? Then, then we're in trouble. So that's where, for me, this distinction that I went back to between self and person is really relevant. And um, 
I think it's also really useful to watch your own little mini movies inside. To watch one's own, I do this with myself. And in these little mini movies, uh, it's where we go when the mind wanders, typically, in the default network, activation, midline network. Uh, it's interesting that self shows up in two ways there, as both subject and object, I and me. You know, The I is the one who's commenting on and has perspectives about and is developing intentions about um, you know, the future, if you will. And it's doing so in part based on what's called affective forecasting, you know, where we're imagining what it will be like for me to go get Chinese food rather than Italian food tonight or something, or go out with her instead of her or him instead of him or him instead of her or something like that, you know. Um, and so uh, it gets really tricky because as we do that, we are cultivating the sense of I. Neurons are fired together, wired together. So insofar as the I is implicit in our ruminations or mind-wandering or daydreaming, we're in, we're, we are reinforcing that presumption. And the argument here, and the Buddha's argument, is that reinforcing that presumption is not good for us and others. So there are two I've, tried to, I've gotten more and more observant about and kind of deconstructive and interruptive What's that term about technologies? Disruptive technology? Is that it? Disruptive? About the just casual presumption of, oh yeah, there's an I. Well, really, is there? And casual presumptions like the way Rick will feel, Rick the self, when something happens, when he has Chinese food instead of Italian food or vice versa. I've gotten faster in my own mindfulness about interrupting that and trying to break it apart. Not out of being mad at it, but just like thinking that it's it's like a mildly delusional and not good for me and others. So I relate to that. So see see what see what is relevant for oneself about this stuff. And I find that a way to relate to this material is both in a very ultimate kind of way, as we just start feeling into ultimate matters of you know, relaxing the sense of I and becoming increasingly accessible to the transcendental, if that's meaningful to us, while at the same time, very, very down to earth. Like, what's it like to take it personally when someone cuts you off in traffic or in a relationship just dumps some kind of reaction on you or doesn't respond to a need? And what's the place where we can be appropriate, even strong and assertive with those other people without getting caught up in me, myself, and I. That's the distinction that I find is very relevant in everyday life. You know, And I can see it operating in my own mind. Someone sends me an email that's kind of maybe dismissive or something or other or doesn't respond to a question specifically I asked among three points you know, in, in an email I sent them about doing something or other. And you know, the reaction will arise. Huh. Why'd they do that? Don't they know? <laughs> or something. You know what I mean? Or like, oh, that hurt. Well, don't you, you need to, you need me. And then, then I'm in trouble. On the other hand, if I just kind of pause and slow down and go, you know, the truth is they probably didn't do that deliberately. I'm not that important to them anyway. Uh, and it's okay. And um, I don't have to take this so personally. And I don't need to add insult to injury here. And maybe they took it personally, but I don't need to take it so personally. And then what would be a skillful response that's not based on the red zone, but rather the green zone? Right there. 
that's where this material, I think, gets really down to earth. So on that, if we could, I'd like to segue into this chunk of material on feeding the hungry heart. Because it's, and I think, again, I don't know if you're a therapist. You sounded like you had some knowledge in that territory. Uh, yeah, yeah, there we are. Um, isn't it interesting and ironic and paradoxical that if people don't get healthy narcissistic supplies while growing up, right, they actually tend to have more self-related activations. And paradoxically, through repeatedly internalizing the sense of being seen, uh, prized, uh, special even, that actually people become more and more relaxed and don't take life so personally. How does this actually work, right? And so that's where this material is about. Some people, like my wife, grew up in a wholly benign they had a wholly benign childhood. Really great, right? She's annoyingly healthy. <laughs> she doesn't understand those of us, you know, who grew up in Woody Allen's world. But anyway, um, then there's the rest of us, okay? Me included, uh, who, you know, had a bumpy ride growing up. And even though nothing horrible happened, it still had consequences. And so what do you do then? If you haven't had, particularly given your own temperament, some people are, need more just in their own natural temperament. They need more narcissistic supplies than others. What happens if for your temperament, it, there were important missing pieces in terms of recognition or uh, prizing or feeling appropriately special in proportion to your own capacities or, and contributions? What happens then? What happens then is a hole in the heart. And self gets very busy around that hole. Either working others to get fed, right? Or, huh, denying it all. You know, I don't need that. And in fact, you know, shutting interactions down that would tend to activate longings for narcissistic supplies because those longings are associated with the expectation for pain. So they shut the whole intimacy down altogether, right? So therefore, paradoxically, out of enlightened self-interest, a really powerful part of practice on the path to relaxing the sense of self is to take in the experience of being worthy, loved, and prized as a person. And that's what I propose to do momentarily with you. Do you see the logic of this? It's kind of neat, isn't it? It's paradoxical, but it's really true. And as we, again, repeatedly internalize these social supplies, so I think of this as related to the attaching system of the brain, as we repeatedly internalize these social supplies, we become increasingly relaxed about relating to life um, uh, with a less and less sense of ego, or me, or I. Make sense? Want to try a little practice here? So, I'll do this with you first around self-compassion, and as a little reminder, how to take in the good, have it, enjoy it, have that experience, either because you notice when you're already having or you create it, and then enjoy it, enrich it and absorb it, you know, uh, sink into it as it sinks into you. So we're going to do this with self-compassion. 
as Pema Chodron writes here, um, the root of Buddhism is compassion, and the root of compassion is self-compassion. You know, feeding one's own heart actually gives us more in the heart to give to other people. But self-compassion is not so easy, even though lots of research shows that it's really good for us and others, including in terms of building up resilience, strength. Okay? So I'm going to go through a little practice with you that you can use with others. By the way, any of these materials that I have on my website or the slide set that I'll send you, you're welcome to share it with others. You could pull slides out. No one can patent an idea. Um, you know, and you know, feel free to use it with other people. Okay, so including this practice of self-compassion, which is somewhat neurologically informed about the neural substrates of key aspects of self-compassion. So we'll do this practice in three steps. The first step is about feeling cared about. We've done that a little bit before. That's a fundamental resource experience to increasingly internalize. The second step will be to feel caring, especially compassionate toward others. And then once you really know what that feeling of being compassionate is like as a body experience, really in the body, then whoop, we'll orient it to yourself. And then we'll come back and talk about it. Okay, let's try it. So to begin, uh, we'll do a few minutes for each one of these steps. And again, you can help yourself really take in the good. See if you can bring to mind, start calling up the experience of feeling cared about. Maybe thinking of one or more beings that do care about you. Could be a group of people, could be from your past, could be animals, spirits, could be in the present. Helping yourself out of cultivation, not out of clinging. Helping yourself um, have a richer and richer, more and more powerful sense of feeling loved and appreciated. And in the second step, having to some extent warmed up the circuitry of attachment in your brain, a relational attachment, healthy attachment, now if you can, bring to mind someone that you care about, especially someone that you have compassion for. Someone who's suffering in ways large or small. Could be a friend, a family member, a child, a pet. Could be beings in other parts of the world. 
See what it's like to wish that they not suffer. Usually with a growing sense of sympathetic concern, warm-heartedness. Perhaps fueled by soft thoughts in the back of the mind like, may you not suffer. Or something specific like, may you find work. Or may you not worry so much about what other people think. Or may your chemotherapy go well. might put a hand on your heart to strengthen this feeling, or a hand on your cheek. Opening into and taking in beautiful feelings of lovingness, concern, good wishes for others, even for others for whom you can actually do nothing. And yet still your compassion is authentic and true. Then in the third step, knowing what compassion feels like in your chest, in your heart, in your mind, apply this same attitude, this same wish to yourself. Being aware of the suffering you're dealing with, the difficult conditions, the stress, the worry, the bodily aches and pains, and disappointments. See if you can keep radiating ripples or waves of good wishes for yourself. Staying centered in the compassion even as you're aware of the suffering and different kinds of suffering, large and small, subtle and gross. Perhaps combined with soft thoughts like, may I not suffer? Or specific thoughts like, may I not feel so pressured? Or may this illness pass? May my own chemotherapy go well.
You can also be aware of challenging times in the past, being aware of younger versions of you in both adulthood and childhood, exploring what it's like to send waves of compassion, the wish that younger versions of you not suffer as they dealt with challenges. Perhaps with soft thoughts directed at younger versions of yourself that you might visualize or simply sense as deeper layers of your own psyche. Maybe soft thoughts like, um, this is hard. It's okay to feel burdened by it. Or soft thoughts like, I wish you not suffer, or encouragement like, trust me, this will pass. Or simply, I love you, which is a very beautiful and powerful um, statement directed at the child layers inside us all. And as a kind of bonus, if it's at all real for you, see if you can experience receiving this compassion. Deep down in the brain, it doesn't know what the source of an experience is. Compassion has been coming your way. You can receive it. What's it like to feel that there is compassion for you?
coming out just a little bit. Quoting Leonard Cohen for anyone who has the thought that um, they don't deserve self-compassion. As he puts it, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything and everyone. That's how the light gets in. We're all cracked. It's okay to be cracked. Is still worthy of compassion. And then, if we can keep going with the second half of this experiential practice, I want to talk about feeling like a good person, which I think in many ways is almost a final taboo. And yet, when we don't deep down, through and through, feel like a good person, not a perfect person, but certainly a good one, when we don't feel like that, That fuels selfing and craving in ways that are problematic. So letting it land again and again, the recognition of, oh, being a good person can really help undo craving and selfing. So to begin with, let's try it. Bring to mind someone, including multiple people, where you would think about them quite matter-of-factly as, oh, he's a good person, she's a good person, caring, decent, makes efforts, wishes the best for others, doesn't need to be a saint, doesn't need to be awakened, but he's a good person, he's a good guy, she's a good fill-in-the-blank woman, person, lady, whatever, good person, that's a good kid, you know, that's a good dog. I mean, it's so easy to say that. That's a good dog. I think we should say that more to each other. That's a good man. That's a good woman. That's a good boy. That's a good girl. You know, without tipping into getting all evaluative about it. But it's like natural. Yeah, that's, that's a good person. Same way. If it's possible to see them as good people, we can see ourselves in the same way. So it's a little bit of a guided experiential practice here right now. See if you can be aware of some of your own wholesome qualities. The fact that you genuinely do care about others. You might even phrase these as questions. Do I care about others? Yeah. doesn't mean you have to care about them all the time or care perfectly or care in a self-sacrificing way. Basically, the same standards you would have for other people that you would discern as good people. You you apply to yourself here. This is the two-way process of the golden rule. You look to yourself, do I care about others? Am I basically fair? Do I have good intentions? Do I take responsibility? (laughs) 
if I met me in a softball team, would I think that that person, that's me, is a good person? And you're trying to help this sink in. You're trying to help it yourself be a stand for being a good person. To give over to the experience of being a good person. And even more deeply and radically, I'll be quiet here for a couple minutes, as you explore what is it inside you that is beautiful, that is so sweet and precious, and even perhaps transpersonal, that's really at the core of your own being. if you will, your own Buddha nature. Can there be an opening to that and a recognition of that? What's it feel like to give yourself over to being the deeply good person that you are? What is it like or what would it be like to operate with others in the knowing, from the knowing of being a good person?
All right, you good people. How was that? Any comments or questions so far? Max? Uh, to find my good, good qualities, I didn't, didn't have to dig very deep at all. <laughs> I, I, I have been married for a long time, and I remember every word of my wife's criticisms. I turned them around, and those are my good qualities. <laughs> she, she says I'm stubborn. I know I, I have determination. <laughs> she, she, say, she, she says I'm sick and tired of your planning. I plan ahead and I carry out, uh, carry out my projects. <laughs> she says I'm selfish, which means I take good care of myself. <laughs> Thank you. No comment. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. I got it. Um, all right, good. Anybody else about those two parts, self-compassion and feeling like a good person and letting it sink in and why that would be helpful? Oh, good. Thank you. The lights are kind of bright in my eyes, so sometimes I don't see things, but yeah, good. Yeah, um, I could switch from compassion to others and hold on to that feeling of compassion. And then I had it for myself um, for like halfway through and then I could feel all of the pain of what I needed compassion for. Um, and then by your gui guiding at that instant, really right at that kind of crossroads, I was able to breathe and kind of pull back to the light of compassion and and have it. And then I did, um, I, I think when you asked how did that feel, I could um, I could feel really loved and blessed, like like my sister or someone had just really loved me well. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, and everyone else. Thank you very much. Okay, over there. Great. This was really quite an amazing experience for me um, because about oh, maybe three nights ago, um, I had what felt like a visitation from my mother who has been gone since for 30 years. Mm. My mother was about my age when she died. And so she only knew me as a young woman. She didn't know me as a 66-year-old woman. And this, it was obviously a dream, but she did one of those, wow, look at you, look at who you are. Mm. How did that happen? Mm. And so the meditation was an invitation when you, when you invited us to think about someone <coughs> who cared very deeply for us. You know, it was an invitation to recall that experience the other night with her. Um, and it was easy to go from there into really thinking of what I might look like to her yeah. at this point in my yeah. life. And, you know, sort of the, the final piece of that is that my mother was already dying when she is, was, my, is my, was my age now. Mm. And um, the gratitude that floods through me not to be doing what she was doing when, you know, when she was my age. It's just really, it really wraps this day together for me very beautifully. So thank you. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And in that too, just to emphasize, it's okay to be resourceful in the ways that people have shared already, whether it's reframing criticism, you know, that's a kind of resourcefulness, um, 
And so, how's that working for you? But anyway, and, and that's okay. And reframing, or rather relating to, you know, self-compassion the way he described or you're describing, it's okay to try different things. And if you think of it, there is a place for noticing wholesome states of mind that are already present or deliberately activating them. And then once they're activating, activated, internalizing them and helping ourselves orient to, okay, without tipping into the pitfalls of clinging to it, what am I helping, what good thing am I helping grow these days, right? What am I developing? What am I cultivating? What am I trying to learn? In terms of virtue, what am I trying to deepen in? In terms of concentration and mindfulness, what am I trying to deepen in? In terms of insight or wisdom, what am I trying to deepen in? In terms of my loving kindness and compassion for others, what am I trying to deepen in? Or in terms of my ordinary skillfulness in a relationship or at work, with raising kids, whatever, what am I trying to grow? And then how can you help yourself grow that? So yeah, that's great. And being resourceful about that. It's really okay. It's good and it's okay. Maybe one more person? Great. Okay. I was struck about how guilty I felt doing this, like I'm not supposed to give myself the attention. Right. And I know I've grappled with the thought about you're supposed to, or it's helpful to develop a healthy ego before letting go of it. Yeah. And so I know that I think I was trying to get rid of my ego too soon and had these... Uh, it also reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs where the esteem need is like a deficiency need until you fulfill it, you can't go to the actualization. Right. If you could speak a little bit to that, because that's a question in my mind about how to get the ego and then let go of it. Yeah, I think that's, um, <clears throat> you're, you're speaking to something very insightfully that's important. And other people have seen it too, that we do need to internalize the sense of prestige or worth, if you will, or how we're seen. or We're social animals. It's natural to long for approval from others. That's normal. Because as our ancestors evolved, the ones that were approved of by others were more effective at passing on their genes. And the ones that were disapproved of uh, ultimately could be exiled, which was a death sentence in the Serengeti. So it's natural to long for approval. I mean, sometimes we think, you know, I reframed this for myself once, you know, where I realized, you know, it's normal to want approval. You know, I was feeling guilty, like I should be farther along, I still want approval. I mean, do you want air? <laughs> We're social creatures. We're going to naturally want that. Similarly, it's natural to feel inadequate or ashamed when others are devaluing or dismissive, justly or unjustly. Um, because there too, our animal ancestors needed to develop the capacity for feelings of shame and on a spectrum, inadequacy, guilt, remorse, less than, inferiority, and so forth. It's natural to have that. What do we do with it? That's the question. But it's, these are natural experiences. Okay? And I think there are a lot of people in the spiritual world, you know, I've been in this world for quite a while, uh, since the 70s, human potential and otherwise, and, you know, they kind of may act all, you know, equanimous or what sort I'm looking for, um, you know, like not self, but the truth is it's what John Well would call a spiritual bypass. They've just leaped, they've, they've leapt past their normal needs and they need to go back and work with them. So there's a place for that. The trick is to see it as a raft, as an intermediate method uh, to internalize approval experiences or worth experiences or, or giving it to yourself so that gradually, increasingly, you're less and less engaged with it because you already have, from the bottom up, that sense inside. Um, yeah. And a couple details. One, 
important point. It's to realize that the executive functions of the mind and supported by the prefrontal cortex of the brain, those executive functions are really natural that make decisions or rate things or direct us in certain paths, give us internal instructions. And it's easy to identify those uh, executive functions with the self, the I. And it's very powerful to appreciate there can still be perfectly effective executive functions arising that value various things, that make decisions, that guide us in various ways. Executive functions can arise without there necessarily needing to be a sense of I doing something. That's sort of useful. Second, with regard to other people, as we have compassion for them, we can take them less personally. We may need to protect ourselves from them. We may need to speak back to them. But paradoxically, out of having compassion for their suffering and their various activations and the stuff going on in them, that helps us deal with the way they mistreat us better, let alone it being, of course, benevolent and moral to have compassion for other people too. So I want to say those two things. Okay, great. All right, a little more out into the deep end of the pool, ending very close to five o'clock on time, okay? So a little thing here about that Bahia Sutta. So I'm gonna do it like this, okay? So this is a scan, this is a slide from a study that was done about um, the contrast between the neural substrates that do tend to support a certain amount of self-referential processing, the midline networks that tend to add reactions to the seen, the felt, the thought, the heard, and so forth. And then also those blobs, those red blobs on the side are networks on the sides of the brain, the lateral networks that are open, they're associated with open spacious awareness, which can become the Bahia place of only the seen and the seen, the heard and the heard, and so forth. Okay? And what studies show is that without training, we can activate those lateral networks that support open spacious awareness, you know, in which we're also relating uh, to life with, less, with little sense of self. Yes, we can tend to activate these networks for about five seconds. <laughs> and then, whoop, we're back in the tyranny, if you will, of midline activations that take over. On the other hand, with training, people can stabilize activation of those lateral networks, which enable them to be in that mode uh, in which there's only the scene and the scene, in which we're alert and present with experience while letting go of it, um, with this kind of impersonal sense of connectedness to all things. How to do that? There are many ways to... um, stimulate this particular uh, network on the side of the brain. And one of the key ways is to have a sense of things as a whole. And I'm going to do this with you as a little practice. Uh, And then I'll show you one more thing. We'll get into Bahia and we'll wrap her up. Okay? So one thing people can do, and you can do it in your own practice and kind of play around with it, is try to be aware of the sensations of breathing in larger and larger parts of your body, larger and larger regions. So it's one thing to be aware, let's say, 
of the sensation of breathing in the belly or the diaphragm or the chest, but can you be aware of the sense of breathing in the whole torso? And the more that we move out into a kind of gestalt awareness in which the spotlight of attention on the stage of awareness starts fanning out to include more of more of what's on that stage, the more we activate those lateral networks of the brain. And the more we stimulate them, the more we strengthen them. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Okay? This sense of experience as a whole will tend to crumble. You might be able to sustain it for only a few seconds in the beginning. That was my experience. But then fairly quickly with practice, you can stay with it, with a sense of the whole torso known at once in consciousness as a single unified percept of experience. And then further, if you want, you can extend it out to the whole body, abiding as a whole body breathing, and then even extend it out to all of experience, which starts to become a kind of unitive sense of awareness that supports one of the five factors of the jhanas in the right concentration element of the Noble Eightfold Path, these non-ordinary states of awareness. All right, so of the five factors, one of them is called um, unitive awareness or singleness of mind. And cultivating this capacity to relate to your whole experience as a gestalt, a single gestalt, with every aspect of it known simultaneously in awareness, will tend to support the singleness of mind. Okay, so you want to try it? Why not? Here we go. So, if you can, just be aware of breathing. And if you want to pick something different, you can, like sounds, but otherwise I'll talk about breathing. So, again, as an experiment of a method, a practice that's very down-to-earth and accessible, even when the relatives are coming over, you know, for uh, Christmas or Hanukkah or what have you, uh, you can be aware of breathing, first of all, in your stomach. and your diaphragm just beneath the rib cage, and also in your chest. And then see what it's like breath after breath, to widen the sense of awareness, to include the sensations of breathing in the torso altogether. From your belly all the way up to the collarbone, both front and back.
and see what happens to your sense of being when you're aware of the sensations of breathing in the whole torso. All of them included in awareness at once in each moment of breathing. And in the last minute, just as an experiment, see if for only a second or two, if not longer, you can have a sense of breathing as the whole body. All the sensations of the body known simultaneously in awareness, a very wide spotlight of attention. One more minute, abiding as a body breathing.
I really like that method of opening to experience as a whole because it's very accessible. And with home practice, uh, certainly um, in meditation, but also even in movement, walking the dog, doing yoga, doing Pilates, uh, brushing a child's hair, doing dishes, we can play around with what's it like to open the field of, of attention to include the whole body and all of the sensations in the body as we engage that activity. And as you do that repeatedly, more and more you strengthen those neural substrates on the sides and become more and more able to relate to life with less of a sense of taking things personally. And I like the fact that there are a variety of ways to strengthen these neural substrates of not taking things so personally. Whether it's sensing the body as a whole, we just did, or those practices from the James Austin material about uh, deepening our sense of open awareness in terms of the alerting function of attention, or tranquilizing, or um, getting a sense of experience as less personal, as impersonal, and arising due to all kinds of factors and causes we're intertwining with. Okay. That's nice to do that. And to appreciate as well that if we repeatedly internalize again and again and again, the felt sense of cord needs authentically met that gradually undoes the deficit and disturbance states that drive the craving, that causes suffering and harm, often through the vehicle of enhanced selfing, as it were. All right. Which brings us really back to drive, yet again. And this is where I want to talk about the um, liking and wanting material, the Bahia Sutta, and then we'll wrap it up. So. <clears throat> It's interesting that in the fundamental kind of ground zero for motivation and drive in the brain, and it's interesting to think about how the Four Noble Truths are basically a drive theory. The Buddha, as the analogy that's often used, is described as a physician. So he, uh, you know, he uh, uh, identifies the malady, suffering, in the First Noble Truth. He diagnoses its cause in the second noble truth, the cause being craving. He uh, affirms that this can be cured, that there is a cure, which is to say the end of the cause of suffering, the end of craving. And then he lays out a treatment plan in the fourth noble path, first, fourth noble truth, the noble eightfold path. All right. So in that way of looking at it as a motivational system, it's about drive and how drive creates suffering and harm, it's really important to engage this question of what is liking and what is wanting and how can we work with these, all right? So deep down in the brain in the basal ganglia, in an older part of the basal ganglia called the ventral, just means lower, striatum, it's also called the nucleus accumbens, I have no idea where they come up with these Latin terms, but they do. There's a little node in the brain called the nucleus ambiguous. I don't like that one. <laughs> Literally. All right. Anyway. Um, so, uh, okay. So in the nucleus accumbens, there are different nodes. And what's interesting is some of them do uh, liking the pleasant or disliking the pleasant. And others do wanting to get the pleasant or wanting the unpleasant to go away. So if you think about it, 
in the brain or an experience, we can separate liking and wanting. We often tend to put them together, but actually where wisdom lives increasingly, in that shock absorber I talked about earlier, you know, in our relationship to what's unpleasant, pleasant, and heartfelt, um, it's natural to like what's pleasant, to dislike what's unpleasant, and if you will, like what's heartfelt. Uh, it's natural to do that, but when we get into trouble, right, is when we tip into craving. So if you imagine that you go out to dinner with friends, or they come into your house, whatever, you have a luscious meal, it's great, and you're totally stuffed, and then they bring out dessert, oh my goodness. And then they give you a helping, they force a second helping on you, and then they say, okay, come on, one more time, third helping, and you're like, oh, no mas, you know, I can't handle it. And they get, put a little taste of it in your mouth, and they say, don't you like it? And you go, yeah, it's delicious. And then they say, well, okay, so don't you want some more? And you're like, oh my goodness, no, all right? In other words, you like it, but you don't want it. Flip the other way, think about casinos or addicts shooting up sometimes um, who want desperately their thing to pull that slot uh, machine lever to get that fix, but they don't particularly enjoy it when it pays off. So you can see that liking and wanting can be decoupled. You can have like and want. You can have neither like nor want. And in this two-by-two two matrix, you could have like but don't want or want but don't particularly like, don't particularly enjoy. It is therefore said, as the slide says, liking without wanting is heaven, wanting without liking is hell. In many ways, the path of practice is to be able to engage liking, to engage the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the heartfelt without tipping into wanting about it. And interestingly, these little nodes inside the nucleus incumbents can be gradually trained over time so that we can engage life on the basis of liking without activating wanting. And there are different ways to do that. Two key ways are to um, cultivate relaxation and tranquility because GABA, again, a neurotransmitter associated with relaxation and ease, um, tends to calm down the nodes in the nucleus accumbens that are these little switches that tip us into wanting. Right in a problematic sense of wanting, drivenness, pressure, insistence, demand. Right? So number one, cultivating tranquility, which is also what's come out of that Austin material about those little switches in the thalamus. Tranquility is a good thing. Doesn't mean numbing. Doesn't mean deadening. It means coming to peace. Second thing is that to not uh, fuel drive states of wanting, because the more we uh, stimulate the neural circuits of wanting in this problematic sense, you know, wanting as in hating the unpleasant, or greed for the pleasant, or clinging to what's heartfelt, stimulate those neural circuits, you tend to strengthen them. So disengaging through a path of renunciation, which is one of the aspects of wise intention in Buddhism. Um, also disengaging from ill will or harming others, another uh, two of the th three aspects of wise intention in, in, in the Noble Eightfold Path, that's a way to reduce our engagement with wanting. So then the trick becomes, how in the world do you engage modern life as householders? How do we enjoy what's pleasant, root for the 49ers, uh, or our kid in Little League, uh, make love, pursue art, pursue social justice, you know, engage life fully, you know, on a good night with friends, howl at the moon, without tipping into the trouble, the suffering, the issues around wanting. Right? 
That's, a, that's really a high art, isn't it? And I think one aspect of that is to allow passion and open to it as appropriate, enthusiasm, engagement, you know, energy, to allow that, which correlates with uh, increased activation of the sympathetic wing of the autonomic nervous system, which is also associated with the fight-or-flight stress response, to allow that activation of sympathetic passion and enthusiasm without tipping into negative emotion. All right? That's the distinction between the green zone and the red zone. It's not about um, passion or activation. I think sometimes in monastic practice there can be a little too much emphasis on quiescence, on tranquility, you know, somewhat perhaps out of fear of what will happen if people get too sympathetically, too activated in terms of sympathetic nervous system. I think of that as like a yellow flag condition, but we can still race around the track. The tipping point from liking into wanting, you know, if you will, around passion is, you know, negative emotion. Also, in terms of, and that's the distinction, by the way, between chanda and tanha. Chanda are wholesome (laughs) desires, including for others to awake, for children to be fed. And tanha is involved in in craving. That's the thirst word. Liking without wanting is heaven. Wanting without liking is hell. Okay, so far? And then that takes us to the Bahia Sutta where, as the story has it, a teacher of the Buddha's time came to him and said, please give me your teachings, noble sir. The Buddha said, not now, Bahia, initially. Um, Bahia asked a second time. The, the Buddha said again, not now, Bahia. And then Bahia asked a third time. And the Buddha traditionally is supposed to respond to a third request. So I, I think of you know the movie The Buddha's Life where the Buddha is played by Jack Nicholson or Robert De Niro. You want my teachings? Oh, can you take my teachings? I'll give you my teachings, Bahia. So uh, that's Rick's edition. It's not in the Pali Canon, trust me. Anyway, so the Buddha just ba-boom, lays it on Bahia, and he says, okay, my teaching is, and this is Bahia, a very advanced practitioner already. The Buddha says, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. Train your mind and thus change your brain. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the unpleasant, there need only be the unpleasant without needing to add secondary reactions, including selfing. We don't need to tip into wanting in a problematic sense about the unpleasant. In the pleasant, there need only be the pleasant. We don't need to tip into wanting and drivenness and pressure about it. And in the heartfelt, there need only be the heartfelt. We don't have to tip into, you know, woe is me, feelings of shame or worthlessness or inadequacy, envy or jealousy about it. There need only be the heartfelt. And as the Buddha says, when that's the case, there's no I there. And when there's no I there, that, just that, is the end of all suffering. And as the story had it, Bahia was enlightened on the spot. That's good. He was a very ripe fruit. You know, and when the Buddha thwacked him, that apple fell from the tree. Good. The bad news, which makes the story more credible in my mind, is that soon thereafter, Bahia kind of spaced out, wandered into a pasture, and was attacked by a bull and killed. Why would they put that in if it's not true? So that makes it weirdly true. And it also says, you know, um, take care of yourself. <laughs> don't, 
don't want there to be too much spaciness. But that all said, the takeaway, I think, for us, you know, is to work with this in our own practice, including in everyday life. So not just when we're meditating, well, that's where we train often, but in the flow of everyday life, they say something, it's irritating or worrying, can we simply let that first dart only land without adding second, third, fourth, and fifth darts that we throw ourselves in our reactions to it? If something nice arises, there's something enjoyable, can we fully enjoy it without reifying it, essentializing it, and trying to hold on to it in the streaming of consciousness? Because that's futile. That's doomed as well as full of suffering. right? And increasingly, going to the next quote from Ajahn Sumedho, can we abide increasingly as awareness itself? Either awareness in an ordinary conventional sense within the natural frame, or to the extent that it's real for us, can we you know, even have a sense of awareness, maybe if it's real, ultimately partaking of something transcendental? Right? We can trust in awareness, not in you know, passing conditions moving through it. You know? Or in the last slide, Thomas Merton, um, Christian Zen mystical character, says, Be still. Listen to the stones of the wall. Be silent. They try to speak your name. Listen to the living walls. Who are you? Who are you? Whose silence are you? And I think with a topic as profound as self, that it's appropriate to end on this note of mystery and a willingness to be lived by that which is good inside us and a willingness to be lived by, ultimately, the Buddha nature of all things. So on that note, I want to really thank you for hanging out with me in the deep end of the pool my favorite part of the pool, and knowing that it really is possible to go forward on the basis of these profound teachings that I'm kind of the conduit of in very practical, everyday ways, not taking life so personally. So, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.